we again greet you in the name of our blessed Lord, the head of the church. The blessings of a disciplined church. So I'm wonder well I'm wondering this evening how you would define a disciplined church. How would you define a disciplined church? So we're to look at the blessings of a disciplined church, but what is a disciplined church? And I I suspect I suspect that the committee that assigned me these topics had in mind church discipline. Is, is that probable? Church discipline is part of a disciplined church. One thing I would say to you at the onset is that which God has designed for the church is always a blessing to the church. Is, is that fair to say that? That which God has designed for the church is always a blessing to the church. And so what does a, what does a disciplined church look like? Number one, the life of Jesus Christ is the life and passion of the church. The life of Jesus Christ is the life and passion of the church. We're, we're looking at a disciplined church. So what is a disciplined church? My friends, tonight, a disciplined church will embrace the life of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. In other words, I have put to death the old man. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul also said, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And then later in that same passage, he says that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. And my friends this evening, what does that have to do with discipline? What does the life of Christ have to do with discipline? May I tell you? Our default mode is always selfish and undisciplined. Is that right? 
and we replace that default mode or our natural mode, we replace that with the life of Jesus Christ and outside of that there will not be discipline because we are by nature selfish and undisciplined. That's our problem. And so if we're going to have a disciplined church, it is imperative that the church of Jesus Christ embraces the life of Jesus Christ and embraces that with a passion. My friends, the Christian journey is not an undisciplined journey. The Christian journey is a disciplined journey. And except and unless we replace that which comes natural to us with the life of Jesus Christ, we are never going to be a disciplined church. We will not be. Number two, what is a disciplined church? A disciplined church is where love, compassion, care, selflessness, Forgiveness and forbearance are practiced among her members. How many of you find that living those, living out love and so on is, that's, that's easy, that's simple for you, isn't it? You find loving your brother and being compassionate and considerate and forgiving and forbearing, you find that comes easily for you? My friends, do you remember what our Sunday school lesson was about last Sunday? See that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently. How many of you find that easily obtained? Or are these areas in which we must exercise discipline if they're ever going to be realized in the church of Jesus Christ? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I have more to say about unity later. By the way, brethren, were you unified in your discussions this afternoon? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not criticizing discussion and differences of perspective and opinion and so on. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. When that is realized, when that is realized, it's an evidence of a disciplined 
church. Because those things do not come naturally for us. Or maybe I should say, they do not come naturally for me. Maybe I shouldn't speak for you. The next one is the Spirit of God is at work among the church, in the church, through the church, convicting of sin, error, inconsistency, and calling her to repentance. Whether that be through personal conviction, through the preaching of the word, or through the brotherly address. Sin is repented of, excuse me, sin is confessed and repented of. And may I say this, at least on occasion, it is acknowledged and confessed publicly. Doesn't the scripture say, after all, that we are to confess our faults one to another and pray one for another, that what, to what purpose, to what end? That ye may be healed. And how many times would God do a work in a people, but we are so hesitant to acknowledge that I have failed, I have sinned, I have, I was wrong. And yes, I ask God for forgiveness, yes. And I do not, I do not make a pretense. I don't want to give the, the idea or the concept that somehow every sin needs to be confessed publicly. That's not the point. But I would suggest this. If the confession of sin publicly, if the acknowledgement of wrong and sin publicly in your congregation is a rarity, I would challenge you to consider why. Does it take more discipline to stand up and say I was wrong than to let everyone else know, I mean, to give the opinion to everyone else that everything's okay, I'm doing well? I remember a brother sharing with me, he had come out of the congregation where he said, rarely, rarely was there public acknowledgement of wrong or sin. I'm not saying there should be a confession of sin every Sunday morning. Neither am I saying that 
We just have to open up and empty out in front of the rest of the people, if you know what I'm talking about. But my friends, and this has happened in our congregation, when I see my brother get up, one of my ordained brethren, get up and confess before the congregation things like pride, that blesses me. Not that he was struggling with pride, I don't know if I've ever if I said this here before or not, because I've been here before. But there was a time when I was on the, commod- the moderating committee of the Midwest Fellowship. I don't know if I was moderator or assistant moderator. It doesn't matter. And I had, that year I had the first message out of the gate. And after I gave that message, God started to convict me of pride. And here I am. I'm one of the moderators, okay? But as as that week progressed, the Spirit of God Okay, I came to the last service of that meeting and I was moderating. And I could have so easily dismissed that crowd and never said a thing. But do you know what it's like to stand in front of a bunch of preachers and confess the issue of pride? But I did. And interestingly enough, once I was obedient to the Spirit, suddenly it kind of opened things up for others to speak as well. When sin is known and confession and genuine repentance are not secured, then the church must follow through with biblical discipline. And that is also a part of a disciplined church. How many of you have ever heard a statement like this? If every member of the congregation were spirit-filled, we wouldn't need church standards. I I should maybe ask you, how many of you believe that? It sounds sounds good, it sounds spiritual, 
If every member of the church were filled with the Spirit of God, we wouldn't need church standards. May I ask you something? Are the reason, or is the reason that we have church standards because our people are not spirit-filled? Is that why we have church standards? So why do you have church standards? And by the way, this issue is another aspect of a disciplined church. Right? Is that, by the way, is that why you have, is that why you have things in, that you require of your members? And how many of you look at your standards as a blessing? So if we are, if we are people that are passionate about the life of Jesus Christ within, let me tell you something. There will be application to scriptures. Is that right? There will be. And so whose prerogative is it, after all, to set the standard for a people? Is it the individual? Is it the family head? Or is it the church? Do you know the answer to that? It's all of the above. It's all of the above. You know, sometimes parents struggle a little bit because they disallow things in their family life that other families allow. Have your people ever been confronted with that? Well, my friends, that is perfectly fine. It is perfectly fine for you as a father to set a standard for your family this is how we're going to conduct ourselves. This is how we're going to live. And it doesn't really matter. Now, I need to be careful how I say that. But there, there's a sense where I make the standard for my family by the grace of God, which, that which I deem to be entirely the best for them. And that is my standard. That's our standard. And the same way with my, my, my individual experience. I was, just recently, I, I said publicly in our congregation, well, Brother Delmer had a message just Sunday evening about building conviction. And I thank God that, I, I thank God for keeping me when I didn't have the standards that I, that I do today. Because I thank God that I have grown to where I have greater standards for myself personally than I did when I was 25. And likewise, how many of you think that there's value in a group of believers getting together and examining the scriptures, examining the, the principles of the word of God and saying, you know what? We believe that this is the best practice for our people. It's not that they spell, it's not that we spell everything out, 
there is room for the individual, there's room for the family, but there's also room for the church, and that's part of a disciplined church. Is there greater wisdom with many than with one? Is that possible? The church corporately endeavoring to live out or live in righteousness and true holiness in all aspects of life and practice. And that includes making practical decisions about how we will practice. Corporate decisions. And I believe that that's part of a disciplined church. Now, by the way, How many of you would like to be a part of a church like I just described? Do you like to be a part of a church like that? Well, then let's be a church like that. Discipline is always for our good. And I just reference what I referenced last evening or read last evening. Simple little phrase. He, speaking of God, he for our profit or good. Why why does God discipline? It's for our good. regardless of how it comes. It doesn't matter what avenue God uses to bring discipline into our lives. It is always for our good. To conform us to the image of his son, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And my friends, how oft do we stymie the work of God in our lives because we chafe under discipline. And the pain of the process, or may I should say it this way, in the pain of the process, we say, no, this is not necessary. How many of you believe that God would have us see ourselves as we really are? And my friends, that is the heart cry of Jesus Christ in Revelation 2 and 3 for the church, that she would see herself as she is. One of the things that has 
in my experience with working with people and observing people and talking with people, is that there can be a great disparity between self-perception and the perception of others looking on. There can be a great disparity between self-perception and the perception of others looking on. Have you ever faced that? So why is that? And I'm not going to spend much time on this. But that's an indication of one thing about each one of us. And, and that is that there's, there's an element of blindness or at least blind spots um, how should I say this in all of us is, is you think you think that's true there there are blind spots in every one of us in other words somehow I, and I'm not sure I'm not sure how the dynamics of this all work but somehow as we ev- as we evaluate ourselves, our self-perception tends to be very different at times from how others perceive us. And by the way, whose perception is right? I will simply say this. One of the reasons, I I believe that one of the reasons that we have a brotherhood or God has ordained a brotherhood is to help us to see ourselves as we really are instead of what we perceive about ourselves. And my friends, be careful. Be very careful what you do with the criticism that comes your way. Now, is it sometimes unjustified? Perhaps. But let me tell you this. There's likely a kernel of truth in almost all criticism that comes our way. And by the grace of God, we as individuals should endeavor to see what God is showing us through our brothers. No, I'm not like that. Secondly, discipline is is for our safety and security. I I fear that we are rather
Protestant evangelical too oft. In our perception of the interaction or the, the workings of the brotherhood or the church instead of Anabaptist. I cannot approach God without my brother. By the way, is that biblical? See, doesn't the scripture say that how can I love God whom I have not seen if I can't love my brother who I can see? Um, doesn't the scripture say that? So is there this, is there this horizontal tie that, that impacts and affects the vertical tie or the vertical relationship? These horizontal relationships impact this vertical relationship. And as much as we may think that, no, that's not the case, it is the case. If we are to understand and if we are to live out the scriptures... And a significant part of realizing discipline in the church of Jesus Christ is the aspect of submission. In fact, I believe that were there no other indication in the word of God that there is that God desires to work through a people, not only through individuals, if there were no other indication in the scriptures other than submission, submission itself is proof positive. So why does God ask you? Why, why is this directive that we are to submit to each other? For what purpose? For what good? And it is simply this, my friends, brothers and sisters tonight, it is simply this, that God is working through a people, not only an individual. That's why I am willing to lay down my preferences and my, and I, don't lay down your convictions, but, but I'm willing to lay down my preferences and my ideas for the greater good and for the greater wisdom that comes out of a spiritual body. How many of you think that your vision is lopsided? Your perspective is lopsided? Or, or do you have it all put together after all? Or are you, is there a balancing impact when we are willing to submit to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Is, is there somehow, does that somehow balance things out? How many, how many of you have gone to business meetings or whatever meetings you have and you, uh, you know, you had things pretty much figured out. You knew which, how we should do it. And then as you sat there, if you were willing to listen at least, if you were willing to listen and heard a perspective from a different angle, suddenly you began to realize, well, maybe, maybe there is some wisdom and value in listening to what my brother has to say. My son-in-law joined our ministry team about, uh, it was in 14, 2014. 
I think I'm allowed to say this about him, um, he, like me, is an introvert. And so he joined our ministerial team, and the first while, he said very little. He, didn't, he just didn't have a lot to contribute. If we'd ask him, he may contribute to it. And so some, some time later, we were faced with a situation, and we were discussing it as a ministry, and I went to that meeting, and I was ready to take action. This was a serious issue. And my son-in-law said, I think this is what we should do. Okay, let's get the picture. So I already told you he's my son-in-law, right? I'm the senior member on the team in both age and experience. I've been in the ministry longer than any of my peers. He's the junior member. And I'm not here to promote rank by any means, but I'm the bishop. <laughs> I'm the bishop and he's a minister. I'm, I'm not saying that that's significant, but that's the way it is. <laughs> but there, there we were in this meeting and he said, I, you know, I think we should do it this way. And without going into detail, I will simply tell you this. I was so glad I followed his advice. I was so glad that I had followed his advice. I was involved in a situation some years ago, several number of years ago. It was not, I mean, I was somewhat involved. I, well, I should say I was involved, but there's a brother in the church that said, The issue before that congregation had almost divided the congregation. And the brother primarily in question, I mean, there were some other issues as well, but the brother primarily in question said this, if the Spirit of God tells me to do it, I will do it. I told one of the pastors in that church, I said, the handwriting is all over the wall. The handwriting's all over the wall. My friends, we, have, we tend to have a warped concept of how the Spirit of God moves among the people of God. 
And he was saying, he was basically saying, if the Spirit of God comes and gives me some personal impression that I should do this, when his congregation was saying, do it! One of the, one of the, one of the primary, I, should, I don't know if I should say primary, one of the primary indicators that a church is disciplined is whether the members in the congregation are willing to submit to one another. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And that, by the way, includes... Does that include me, you think? <laughs> I must say, I, I am blessed by the input of my brethren. And sometimes when I, I need my brethren to help me steer me in the right direction. I have a fr there's a friend of mine that went through a very, very dark valley, extremely dark and difficult. And he recovered from that. And I met him this past year. We were together. And he asked me some he asked me a question. The church he had been a part of had asked him to come back and make a statement. And actually, his membership was still there. And he felt, he felt very, very much that he had been unfairly, I mean, the, the situation as it was, was, was not as it should have been. And by the way, if you want my opinion, I would tend to agree with him. And so we were together, I was having meetings, he came over and we talked, and he was asking me, what should I do? And so I didn't, I don't think I answered him right then. I called him several days later or something. And I said, I think the best thing to do is that you go back. Because they've asked you to, you go back and make that statement. And he said, if I do, it'll be the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. Sometime in our conversation, he said, if that, that's going to be the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. But I said, I think that you need to go do it. Submit yourself to the brotherhood. And he went and did it.
And you know what he received in return? He received the unanimous support of that congregation. My friends, one of the evidences of a disciplined church is when we are willing to lay down our own ideas and opinions for the greater good. The next point is that we may with one mind and one mouth glorify God. My friends, I don't know that there's a greater evidence of divine discipline among a people than when it can be said of them that they with one mind and one mouth glorify God. That is astounding. That a people that are diverse and come from divergent backgrounds and all sorts of different experiences have impacted their life and in the process of life they've come to, I mean, Obviously, they've come to different conclusions and so on, but the, the standard of the scripture is that we would with one mouth and one mind glorify God. One mind and one mouth, that we would glorify God. And one of the greatest demonstrations of a disciplined church is when there is unity among the brotherhood. Where we are, we, we tend to think alike. It's not like we want to have a different opinions. But we think alike, and you know why we think alike? Because we have the mind of Christ. That's the only way we'll ever think alike. That we have the mind of Christ. And my friends, I wish for the Southeastern Conference and every congregation that's represented in the Southeastern Conference, that you would with one mind and one mouth glorify God. Jesus said, if you want to turn to John 17, John 17 and verse 20. Jesus is praying to the Father here and he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, which includes us here this evening. Jesus is praying for us. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, 
that they may be one even as we are, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That they may be one, that they may be one. One of the evidences that we have not done well in the heart cry of Jesus Christ in relation to the church is the myriad of expressions of Christendom. But my friends, how is it right here that they may be one that they may be one. That we would with one mind and one mouth glorify God. My friends, Almighty God is blessed when that occurs. And God's people are blessed when that occurs. The blessing of reconciliation and restoration. I'm not going to spend much time with this. But I will say this. When we talk actually, when we actually talk about church discipline, not necessarily a disciplined church, but church discipline, restoration and reconciliation should always be our goal. We have a compassion for souls that we endeavor by the grace of God to bring them back, to call them to repentance. And my friends, what a blessing and what it is, a privilege it is to be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation and restoration. The goal and the purpose of you going to your brother and addressing him. Why do you go? In order to restore him, to reconcile him. Jesus said, thou hast gained thy brother. You've gained your brother, you've brought him back. And that should be the goal and purpose of every one of us. Just recently I heard a brother say, there had been a relationship that had been somewhat strained. And these two, these two couples had the privilege of spending a couple days together. And he said it was healing. Reconciliation and restoration. My friends, that's what God desires. And that should always be the goal of the Church of Jesus Christ. In closing, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. 
the words given to John, come up hither and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Turn with me to Revelation 19. Verse 5, it says, And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the voice of many waters, and the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. The marriage of the Lamb is come. And blessed are they that are invited to that marriage. I would wish for all of you that are married a good, godly marriage. And I hope you enjoy that. I hope you have that and that you enjoy that. That is a blessing from God. And it a marriage that portrays the beauty of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And a marriage that's a blessing to you, it's a blessing to your spouse, it's a blessing to your children, and it's a blessing to all that are around you. Do you believe it's possible to have a marriage like that? It's a great blessing to have a marriage like that. But one thing I will tell you is that the absolute best of godly marriages will pale markedly before the marriage of the Lamb. Do you believe that tonight? And I don't, I don't care how much you want to promote how blessed your marriage is. There's a marriage coming that will supersede that marriage by far. And it's the marriage of Jesus Christ to his bride, the church. Absolute relational Perfection. Do you believe that? Absolute relational perfection. And you know what he says? Blessed are they that are called to this marriage. How many of you have been called to that marriage? The alternative, my friends, 
is absolutely horrifying. Torment unimaginable, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Then he says, and his wife hath made herself ready. By the way, who is that? Isn't that astounding? His wife hath made herself ready. And Revelation 21, 9, Come up hither, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. She will be a chaste virgin, pure, holy, without blemish or spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Do you believe that? Who is that? There's a, there's just a sketch of a drawing in the book by Wilmington. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that book or not. It's kind of a Bible resource book. But it's, it's just a sketch of this beautiful bride, but it's made up of thousands of these little people. Isn't that incredible? She is the sum of perfection. She's exquisitely beautiful. And she is clothed in beautiful, brilliant, white robes of righteousness. But she is not that way naturally. She was not born that way. She did not make herself that way. She is that way not by her own works, but through God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. God recreating humanity in the image of the divine. And my friends, part of that process of recreating humanity in the image of the divine is discipline. Tonight you can resist discipline You can reject discipline. You can take your own way if that's what you choose to do. But my friends, if you do, I question 
whether you will be an individual that is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Except ye repent. Lord bless you.